Noise Nation. Greetings, confrères. Great word, by the way. Welcome to Device Nation. This is Kevin Brown, your surrogate leader, bringing you ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. I hope you're having an awesome day. I know I certainly am. Today is a super exciting day. We're going to finish up on our conversation with Reconstruction rock star, Dr. Robert E. Booth. Left you with a cliffhanger last week. Well, have no fear. Catharsis is on the way. You are absolutely going to want to stick around for that. I was sticking around the other day for a case to start in the OR and I saw a hose on the wall and it said it was a drench hose. Huge handle on this thing and I thought, wow, you are in a lot of trouble if you need to fire that thing up. And that immediately (laughs) reminded me of standing up at the control desk of an OR one day and a surgeon came out of the men's locker room and I'm not kidding you, it looked like somebody had taken that drench hose to him for a solid two or three minutes. He was no surprise here, drenched. And he just kept screaming the same thing over and over again. Who is responsible? Who is responsible? And maybe it was just my experience with my kids and the practical jokes we were always doing to each other. Taping the spray head open on the kitchen sink to get mom was always a classic. And I thought if this was intentional, whoever was responsible belongs in the Hall of Fame. Absolutely hilarious. One person who belongs in the Hall of Fame is former FBI BSU chief, Dr. Greg Vecchi. And we're going to take the opportunity this week to further open up the behavioral influence stairway model that he developed. And we did a quick overview last week. And this week, we're going to go at the beginning. The beginning of every staircase is the landing. Friendly reminder, I have included a Dropbox link to the graphic so you can follow along in today's show notes. So quick review, what are the steps on this graphic? We have the landing of the staircase, which is expressive, no credibility whatsoever. Next step is empathy. We've started the back and forth. The next step is rapport and trust as a result of the empathy. And then the last step, hopefully influence, which leads to behavioral change. And what's behavioral change in the sales model? Well, that's actually the customer saying, I want to use your product your tibial nail, your knee replacement, your vertebral spacer, what have you. Now, that's the sexy part of the sale. However, there's a lot that happens before you get down at the end of that aisle and rings are exchanged and each party says, I do. Let's keep that marriage metaphor going for just a second. If we hit the rewind button before rings were exchanged, at some point it started with, hello, my name is... An introduction, right? Now, that can be in the form of either introducing yourself or introducing a product. Either way, you find yourself at the very bottom of the staircase at the landing. Quick story. Many years ago, back in my college days, my first attempt at a corporate sales job worked with a company called Harris Lanier. Great sales training experience. I was responsible for selling business telephone systems in eastern North Carolina. And on this particular day, I thought I hit pay dirt. I walked into the Chevrolet dealership and they had the most antiquated phone system I had ever seen. They were called 1A2 phones, four buttons and a red hold button down at the bottom. And they were rotary dial. And there I am with this fancy schmancy Toshiba key system with all the bells and whistles. I thought this is low hanging fruit. It gets better with no resistance at all. I actually got right into the dealer's office within seconds. 
But alas, before I could ask my first probing question, he looked out the window of his office and he said, Is that your Honda CRX-SI out there, son? Yes, sir, I beamed proudly. Before I could even get out another word, he opened up a can of World War II on me and proceeded to tora, tora, tora my rear end for the next 10 minutes. He practically had me flying the zeros over Pearl Harbor. It was honestly a profanity-laced beatdown that I had not ever experienced in my life. It reminded me very much like the father in the Christmas story when he was downstairs working on the furnace. So needless to say, it was a long drive home that day. And the very next morning, I didn't even want to leave the office. I felt like I'd been kicked in the teeth, just a total smackdown. And Lance, a very wise rep that worked with me, came in. He saw my dejected countenance, asked me what was wrong. I walked him through the whole story, and he gave me some advice I never forgot. I did not like it. I did not appreciate it at the time. But he said, Kevin, I think what you need to do is go out and make some cold calls. Well, I really respected Lance, and even though I didn't understand what he was asking me to do, I just did it anyway. And I made that long walk back to my car, started it up, and drove off. And you know what? Something happened that afternoon that I will never forget. A lead that I got from knocking on a door would lead to three sales in Wallace, North Carolina, that would result in a plaque. Remember sales plaques? For Salesman of the Month. So what's the takeaway? The hardest door to open in medical device sales is often the car door, isn't it? I was watching this detective show the other day, and he had a sign on his cubicle, and it said, I quote, get off your ass and knock on doors. I am so getting that put on my office wall. Why is this such a challenge? Why is it hard to open up the car door? Why is it hard to go out there and knock on doors? Well, a couple reasons. Number one, it's a lot easier just to hang around people that like you and that you know. The second reason is one of the vagaries of medical device sales. You start out the day with 10 things to do on your to-do list. By the time lunch rolls around, 15 more things have been added. By the end of the day, you really didn't get much of anything that you wanted done. You were just trying to survive the day. And you lather, rinse, and repeat this a few days in a row. A week goes by, a month goes by. And if you're honest with yourself, you didn't introduce yourself to anybody that you don't know. And you didn't show any new products just because you were busy, busy, dreadfully busy. And all the VeggieTale fans went, yes! So here is where I want to encourage you. We have to get past this landing of the behavioral influence stairway model. We have to make cold calls introducing ourselves and new product to our customer base. Why? Because the one thing as sure as the sun coming up tomorrow is change. And it can land on your doorstep when you least expect it, when you least Wanted, the hospital that signed a five-year agreement with your company just 12 months ago now wants to renegotiate for a lower price. The surgeon that's been carrying your water for years has just decided to retire. The other surgeon that's been carrying your water for years has just decided to relocate. The system that you work at has decided to go single vendor. The product that your surgeon holds near and dear to his or her heart has just been rationalized by your company and they do not like the replacement that you have provided. Does any of this sound familiar? Well, just know that the only insurance against that kind of change 
is growth. And you can't get to empathy, rapport, trust, influence, and behavioral change without that initial introduction of a product or yourself. Now, right there, I know some of you have blown a whistle, thrown a flag, 10 yards, loss of down. And I know you're saying, Kevin, getting off your ass, knocking on doors, I get all that. But you know what? It means nothing if they won't let you in because COVID has created some serious access issues, right? Well, when the going gets tough, the tough get creative. I will try anything, and I'm always looking for creative ideas to help move this ball down the field. And I happened to run into Dustin Poole on LinkedIn. Make sure you give him a follow. And we had an inspiring conversation about the whole idea of drop-off boxes uh, in these accounts where you had access constraints. I have included a picture on today's episode to show you exactly what this looks like. Put whatever you want in there that you want to show, put a note, drop it off at the front desk, and voila, you have a three-dimensional brochure. And then just come back and pick up the box later. My first attempt at this, I dropped it off, I made it 100 yards down the highway, and my phone rang, and it was the surgeon I had dropped it off for. He said, come back, I want to see more about this. I brought my trays in, showed it to him, he brought his partner in and had him look at it as well. Weeks would go by, and I thought, well, I'm not sure what happened there, and then my phone rang. It was the surgeon that I had originally shown it to. He had a case that was perfect for this particular product. We brought it in. We did the case. It went awesome. So here are the takeaways. Number one, and I'm going to be your Lance here, there is nothing that will energize you more and inspire you in this job and get you out of the doldrums, to be quite honest, is to go out and make some calls, show some product that you're excited about, and meet some new people. It can really put some wind in your sails. We're going to try to help you in that regard with our Brown Bag series, bringing to you products that are actually really fun to sell, unique things out there that you're going to have a blast showing around. Number two, like the $6 million man, it's going to make you better. It's going to make you stronger. It's going to make you faster. You can get a little soft in this job calling on the same people over and over and over. There's something about engaging new people with new things that keeps you on your edge. It keeps you sharp. I think it makes you better. Number three, introducing yourself, introducing your products gets things in the pipeline in advance of the inevitable change that's coming your way. And as a bonus, it keeps management off your back. And lastly, you know, I remember my Sunday school teacher saying, faith without works is dead. You know, knocking on doors, making 3D brochures, setting appointments, calling people to go, hey, what are you doing in this environment? It takes work. Creativity is not just a cerebral exercise, right? So let's all work on a weekly goal of just putting one product and one person on the landing of this stairway. I promise you, after 52 weeks of this, you're not only going to be better at this job, but great things are going to happen. Well, great things happened as a result of knocking on our next guest door, Dr. Robert E. Booth. I'm so thankful that he opened the door and said, come on in. Today is part two of our conversation with him, just walking through his life and his practice, a real icon 
in the orthopedic space, the Charles Atlas of arthroplasty. So let's jump right in to where we left off. That's a good jumping off point right there, Doc. I just wanted to see through your eyes and your OR. Walk me through your technique on a primary total knee. Well, I'll be totally honest with you. I do two different knees. I do the uh, persona for straightforward, simple knees because I think if the ligaments are already balanced and the deformities not that severe, and, I, and frankly, the knees we're doing now are nowhere near as difficult as the knees we did in the beginning, or that's one of the advantages of going on something like an op walk where you see knees that are just horrible and that you almost have to freehand because there are no tools to deal with those things. But uh, for me, for a persona knee, I make my distal femoral cuts with an extra two millimeters from the beginning because I know I'm going to need it because it's a PS design. I still believe PS designs are are better, um, not by much, but a tiny bit. Um, and then I make my tibial cut do the extension balance, do the flexion balance, and then finish off with the chamfers. There are really only five steps in doing a knee, no matter how you do it, but I think the sequence matters. If I do a next-gen knee, I'm still using a soft tissue balancing uh, tensor-type tensor system. So I cut the tibia first, then I cut the, uh, the flexion gap, uh, and then the distal femur. And I think the difference in that sequence means that I don't get the flexion laxity that I'm seeing doing it the other way with uh, extension first. It's a little different with the different systems. And the more difficult knees, I use the, uh, the next-gen system because of the soft tissue balancing. Do you uh, do a lot of capsule release in your cases? If you need it, you go after it. If you don't, I mean, there, there are two, two causes of mid-range instability. One is raising the joint line, which PS knees generically tend to do. PS, CR knees tend to lower the joint line. Uh, well, that's from Leo Whiteside, not me. Um, and the other is not releasing enough of the capsule, which Ken Krakow taught us years ago that people are afraid to go in the back. Now, hopefully they're going in the back of the femur, not the tibia, because it's a lot easier to fix one big vessel than three little ones. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, but I think releasing the posterior capsule, if it's tight, uh, you can pretty much do with impunity. I don't think you necessarily need to go to the more constrained designs that have extensor blocks on them. I certainly take off the osteophyte. And if people have a huge posterior osteophyte, especially in a varus knee, to me, that's an indication to do a, a knee design where you do the tibia first so you can get that osteophyte out early in the case. Because if you wait to the end of the case to take out the posterior osteophyte, you'll get medial ligament laxity. Mm. Uh, that osteophyte, even though it's posterior, affects the medial balance more than po more than we usually realize. That's good. On your balancing, are you a periosteal elevator surgeon, or does a spinal needle work just as well in your hands? I don't agree with pie crusting the MCL. Okay. I think the MCL is sacred. I'm afraid to do to do that. But for the lateral side, I think that's a perfectly fine technique. I, frankly, in very high valgus knees, the hypoplastic lateral femoral condyle type knees, um, I will take off the whole 
complex off the uh, lateral femoral epicondyle. There are lumpers and there are splitters in this world. The Jerry Engs, for instance, always used to take the five insertions of the uh, lateral collateral and go after them individually. Um, the insole group would pie crust the, the, the arcuate complex in the posterior corner, uh, except for Norm Scott, who would actually take off the lateral epicondyle and sort of let it slide uh, to release of the contracture. I will take it off, but there's still sufficient stability uh, doing. I think there are three or four different ways of doing that, and I have no trouble with pie crusting. I just don't like pie crusting the MCL. I, I, that makes me nervous. What's on your uh, preference card for pain control? Um, for pain control? No. <laughs> pain control is an embarrassment. Do you realize that for <laughs> centuries we have operated on people and then waited until they screamed and then given them medicine? And the biggest revelation now is we figured out they're going to scream after we cut off the ends of their bones. <laughs> the biggest thing is giving them those cocktails, whatever you prefer in advance and it's it's truly embarrassing it's taken us this long to figure out that we're going to hurt people and if we can get the pain management part of that cycle dealt with before the pain comes uh, we've got a better chance of minimizing it so we give anti-inflammatory steroid and, and an opiate the area where I work is the opioid center of at least Pennsylvania, possibly the world. So we, it's very hard to give. And the patients themselves are terrified of taking opioids. So one of my problems now is, is not so much the intraoperative. It's just to get at it early. Getting people to take medications, better they take it early on and get their motion and then get off it quickly rather than the ones try to take half of what you prescribe for them and uh, drag it out over months. They're far more habituated, at least I think so. The uh, outpatient total need for a while. I'm doing a very population right now, most of whom are morbidly obese, um, multiple comorbidities and habituated. The doctors in our area, if you come in with a painful knee, they give you narcotics right away. So I don't see, I see practically no new patients who aren't already on some narcotic. So that's a big problem for us. Uh, and getting them off for a while at least, and and then whether they're back on it going again afterwards, sometimes you just never know. But taking it as briefly as possible and getting your motion, particularly extension, is what I care about. Uh, most of the therapists in our area are obsessed with flexion, and I'm obsessed with extension. I think they're safer and more stable, and I think for reasons I don't know, the pain drops off faster if you get your extension rather than focusing on flexion. So I'm, uh, I call at least one therapist a week and ream them out for uh, focusing on extension and using weights until they're uh, out in full extension. What does extension look like to you in the OR, sir? I, I've, I've seen guys straighten that leg out, girls straighten out that leg, and, and some of them like a little bounce. Some of them like it nice and snug. Uh, I've even seen a few that'll accept a few degrees uh, of a contracture there. Uh, wh what do you look for? He can't accept a contracture. That's the one thing I think I would feel strong about. So the happiest ones are the ones when you go to put in an extension and it just falls out. And it's got, I don't know, one or two degrees of 
maybe even hyperextension, but there's a clear drop into extension because it's it's a it's a condylar joint. It should be a little loose in extension. And I was misled early in my career by one of my senior partners who said knees should be tight in extension so that they're stable and loose in flexion so they bend. And we now know the opposite is the truth that if you leave them loose in flexion, you neuter the cam mechanism and you don't get good motion. Okay. But similarly, I don't think you I don't think you can accept any stiffness in extension. In extension, they have to go out straight and solid. And uh, I will do whatever it takes to get that. Taking down the capsule, uh, I think. I think a good principle for young guys is when you get to a problem at every step, you ought to look at both bony and soft tissue solutions. So if I have a knee that's not extending all the way. I'm not going to take away more bone, which I think is what most people think of. I would go for the soft tissues first and see if I could get the extension by taking off the proximal capsule or something, and then the bone. I mean, you have two choices pretty much every time you have a problem, but you shouldn't necessarily just go after the bones each time because then you're changing your joint line. And if you mess with the femur, you're changing it in in extension, not in flexion or vice versa. Playing with the tibia is a little more fruitful, but the best choice is, is soft tissues usually. You did a presentation years ago, doctor, that I really enjoyed, how to do a bad knee. And, and I was just <laughs> curious, you had some great slides. What are some of the landmines that a, sur- a surgeon should be looking out for to make sure that that doesn't end up on a slide presentation? What are the things that can easily go wrong? I got a whole list and everybody's list is a little bit different, but you know, um, for people who've seen six other surgeons in my area, a lot of people are, especially the private practices that dominate our area are very cautious about not taking on people who have uh, pain management problems or stiffness or comorbidities. Uh, that's sort of the talk of the day for me. They're often more personal things. If they have a problem, will I be able to get along with them? If they're, and you know, the, that part of that talk is is half funny and half serious. Uh, right. You know, uh, hyphenated names, uh, women with more cats, uh, more than two cats, uh, you know, <laughs> things like that. There are a lot of folks that over the years, just things just haven't gone well. And if I look back on um, you know, men with more than one gold chain, white shoes in winter. I've got a whole list of things that I, I more, more than 15 hours. <laughs> yeah. A guy who comes in with his mother over the age of 50, you know, that's not a good sign. And, right. Uh, so it, it's, it's what you're, com- I got a longer list now because of the community I'm in is a little, uh, uh you know, a little less sophisticated and, uh, it's tougher. Uh, they have different issues. Um, um, people who aren't working, I think now we have a, an entitlement society where a lot of people don't intend to go back to work. They're getting their joint because they are still working, but they have no intention of going back. And they'd like you to be the reason that uh, they didn't because they now have a need. It's not what it was when they were 20. And managing those expectations is something that takes more time now than it ever used to. I think part of it's our own fault. We now have knees that when they go great, they're spectacular, but that the slightest uh, bit of stiffness or residual pain or even lateral numbness and stuff, which is endemic to every knee, um, people tend to focus on something, especially if it 
will help uh, refinance their careers. So uh, I'm very cautious about uh, those things. And I don't pick them up very well. I have three PAs who see every patient before I do, one of them uh, at least. And women are much more uh, sensitive to this. Uh, they they can uh, tell who's crazy and who's not, where I think men are much more forgiving <laughs> about other men's frailties. Uh, right. So uh, I listen to them. I have a deal with my PAs that if they tell me that someone's not a, that someone's a loser and I shouldn't operate on them, and I do just because it's a complicated case and I want to do it, then every phone call that comes in is mine. They keep a little book and I have to answer all the phone calls. <laughs> That's their way of punishing me for overriding. So listen to the women. They know better than we. Yes, they do. Uh, I, speaking of women, I remember telling my daughter when she was six, uh, you know, there's no I in team. And she quickly responded back, well, there's no you either, Dad. And, uh, and and, you know, any opportunity I had for like a disrespectful, teachable moment there was lost because I just started laughing at it. It was so funny. Yeah. But you, you, at pi- six. <laughs> at six, <laughs> you pioneered the team concept uh, in joint replacement with dedicated people attached to your service. I-, I just wanted to ask what inspired you on that front? Where are you now on that whole thing? So I've moved several times and I regret my last move because I love Pennsylvania hospitals where I was born and I worked there for 40 years. And the team that I put together there were very carefully selected over the years. Actually, they often select themselves. If you've got a great operation going, and I don't mean the surgical operation, but a great system going, a lot of people will gravitate and try to get into that because they want to play with the varsity. They want to be the best themselves. And so and the people who don't want to do seven or eight joints in a room in a day, you know, went off to other places. Because when I was working at Pennsylvania, if you did three joints a day for the competing uh, practice and you did seven a day in our room, you got paid the same. So it really is a matter of altruism and pride. And what's curious is those people have now followed me. I'm in north of Philadelphia in Bucks County. One of my surgical teams comes from Delaware, takes them an hour to drive there every and each way. Another's from southern New Jersey, another hour drive. Uh, some are from west the, the western suburbs, uh, pretty much the same. These people are still coming after 20 or 30 years to stay together as a team. And the real, if you could put it down to one word, I think it's respect. I think medicine is stifled by the uh, the caste system the administrator the doctor the head nurse the pa you know goes on down the list i don't think those titles matter at all i think it's how you do your job not what your job is so if you're the best housekeeping person in the or you're the one i want to work with me to turn over my rooms and you get invited to the christmas party i don't care what your title is, if you're the best housekeeper around, then you're on my team. And I think that respect for people and how they do their job uh, sort of eliminates all the other uh, nonsense that the administrations would put in. So that's, I think, what's kept us together. Um, we're all getting old now. you got to realize uh, <laughs> <laughs> we were at one point doing 
averaging 15, 16 knees a day, I'm down. 10 is a good day for me now. Sure. I, I try to average 10, but if it weren't for a leave and uh, my hot tub and some Chardonnay, I don't think I could do those. So. <laughs> <laughs> You'll see as you get older, it's a, it's a very physical thing we do. And yeah. you got to take care of the, the staff around you because they're aging too. So it's like one big family in a way. Did I hear it right? That you're the subject of a Harvard business case review. Yeah, they came down their original interest. They did a two-part review. It's still they're still presenting it as a case study. Um, Harvard Business School. The original intent was to figure out. Kevin Bo, Kevin Bozik came through and saw what we were doing and the volumes that we could produce. And he had been there uh, to get, I guess, his uh, PhD and encouraged them to come by. And they wanted to look at how we could motivate people to work harder. That was the original thesis of how you could have one group doing three cases a day, finishing at nine o'clock at night. And, and here we were doing seven or eight and finishing at, you know, 4.30. And they wanted to know how you could get people to work harder for the same pay. They then switched focus while they were there because they were fascinated by how the administration could tolerate two different systems working side by side. And I must say, I thought that wasn't really as important. But over the years, that was probably the issue that caused us to move when the administrators real still, still didn't really get that. Uh, and um, that's still our problem now. Uh, we gave up control in medicine. I just finished a JCO uh, review, for instance, and uh, you know, to have people come in and pick on things that that just work with your population and your demographics and your group of people, the, you you can't make one standard for everybody. So uh, they criticized us, for instance, for using drains. Well, fifty percent of my cases are bilaterals, and another twenty percent are revisions, and I wouldn't dream of doing a revision without putting a drain in. And uh, the literature they quoted, which from which we were out of step, was all about single primaries. So there's not literature out there to cover everything. So at some point, experience-based medicine uh, trumps evidence-based medicine, at least until there's evidence uh, germane to that particular question. You won a Coventry Award for Molecular Genetics for detection of the infects <laughs> of TKA. Uh, and now Sinovisher is a household name, so to speak. Uh, I think the, the rapid test is one of the coolest things I've seen in a while. How did you come yep. up with that? And uh, wh where did Alpha Defensin come into your mind in that whole so process? So another amusing story. My daughter went to Princeton, and Princeton requires that you take a course in five different disciplines, one of which is science. So she calls me and says, Dad, what should I choose? Are all these signs? She's like me. She's, I, like I said, I was a graduate student in poetry. I know very little about math and <laughs> less about bio, molecular biology. Right. So I said, you know, and I think the history of your generation is written. Molecular biology is going to be one of the most significant things. So take that. And so she calls me back a week later and says, what have you done with me? These are the smartest kids on campus. They already know all this stuff already. There's no way I'm going to pass this course. You've killed me. And so Rocky Twan, who was the head of research at Jefferson at the time, 
was running a Saturday morning course. It was basically molecular biology for dummies. And it was all dumbed down. And I said to my daughter, all right, here's the deal. Come down from Princeton. It's a six-week course. I'll go to the course with you to make up for the fact that I got you into this. And so I got a rudimentary course in molecular biology. A few weeks after I finished, Carl Germenian walks into my office. He presented his idea. He came up with all of this. He was a molecular biology major at Princeton, came into my office and said, I presented my ideas at Penn and the professors all laughed at me. And frankly, they just didn't understand me. And I said, well, believe it or not, I actually understand what you're talking about. And he said, I need some startup money. I need, I said this, I wrote him a check for $10,000 on the spot. I said, if you need more, let me know. I don't want anything out of this except that you finish this and get it going and do it because you're working hard as a resident. This is going to be tough running a company, creating a company and running it as well and also getting the answer. And so this is all real Carl Dimension's brain and work. And it was just a freak of nature that I happened to know enough molecular biology <laughs> to, to actually understand what he was talking about. I right. learned a lot more after that, but um, that's, that's the story. I, I actually got the PCR, uh, the D Society Award for uh, Polymerase Chain Reaction uh, ahead of that. So, um, and also for, uh, I was flying back from uh, a course and I saw a golf magazine where they put these uh, templates in uh, Tiger Woods shoes to see why he shifted his weight. So I persuaded Zimmer and Biomed to create some prostheses that had this film in them. It was made by a company in Boston. So the the ortho sensor or whatever it is now, I was dumb enough not to patent it. I never patented all that much in my whole career. But anyway, I used that to test the balance. And we found things we didn't even understand that the the knees that didn't roll back all the way actually were better knees than the ones that rolled way back, which was the passion at the time. So um, all these things I've sort of come by secondhand. I have no pretensions as a, a basic scientist, um, just happened to be in the right place at the right time. So. Well, you hit a home run with that booth retractor. That's, uh, that's one of my fondest <laughs> instruments of all time. Love that. Well, the, gr the greatest victory there was to get the Rothman group to actually start calling it the booth retractor. They used it for years. But it was all they could do to get the word out, but they finally started <laughs> calling it the booth retractor. So that was the real win there. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. Hey, you know, you've worked with, you've been dropping names this whole time. Uh, you've worked with the who's who in orthopedics over your career. Any notable interactions, people that have crossed your path that you have a great story about? I met some great brains. Um, Aaron Rosenberg in Chicago, he and I, we sort of exchanged for years. We've stopped it now because he's been ill, but we used to exchange books, non-orthopedic books, but he was one of the really good thinkers, I think, about, uh, about orthopedics. Uh, two guys in Boston, um, Thornhill and Scott were like brothers to me. They're retired now, but um, and they were on the other side of the fence. They were crucial retaining people, but in, you know, you learn so much by teaching and writing a lecture because it forces you to put your thoughts into this, you know, persuasive and coherent form and dueling with them, uh, taught me a lot. They were, and they were good surgeons and good guys as well. 
Uh, Richard Berger in Chicago is probably the best manual technical surgeon I ever saw uh, in knees. Uh, Maurice Mueller was probably the best hip surgeon I ever actually watched operate. Um, uh, and then uh, Larry, like I said, for all his bombastic uh, flamboyance, he was a, he definitely had a way of persuading you to think whatever he was thinking and uh, and huge energy and just did so many great things. Uh, I personally think Op Walk is the high point of his career, but he did so many great things for a lot of people. Uh, he's another one of my uh, my favorites. I was the lounge act for the Merle Ritter show when I was with, <laughs> uh, with the Merle Ritter. They'd send us on tour and I'd talk about my PS knees and then he'd get up and say, this kid doesn't know anything and, uh, you know, <laughs> tell right. him about his CR knee and uh, why it had to be flat on the surface. Right. Uh, but there were some, there were some real strong personalities. I flew out a couple of times to see Tom Mallory because he was into efficiency and he was into the psychological side of efficiency. Uh, he looked at every person who worked for him and tried to be sure that they were in the right position to do their job. Uh, he told me if your job is to push a button and you've got an IQ of 120, then you're going to get bored in about a day. But if you are uh, of a mental capacity where pushing a button's a challenge, then you're going to do that job really well. And he had people allocated to jobs uh, based on their skills and their interests and their talents. He was a very humanistic approach, I thought, to how to create an OR team, um, which he did several times over whenever he, you know, uh, didn't get uh, the resources he needed. He'd move hospitals without, without blinking. And that's a tough thing to do for these young guys who think they can move from hospital to hospital. That's, it's very difficult to make your team and your art portable. Your comment about being the warm-up act for the CR beatdown reminded me <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> reminded me of a story. Uh, many years ago, a surgeon I know reached out to you regarding a cobalt chrome implant. He had inadvertently put in a nickel-sensitive patient, and I believe you told him that you expressed more concern that he used a CR component. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's been a lifelong battle, and I've been on the opposite side of a lot of issues. So I thought CR, and, you know, they've changed their uh, kinematics. They put a ramp in the front and a ramp in the back. I mean, it's basically right. a, it's, it's basically a PS knee now. Uh, but there's only – the differences have now gotten so small. It's only like 2% difference, let's say. Cement versus uncemented, eh, 2-3% maybe as far as fixation. Patella, not patella, I think that's a bigger difference, but it's still, you know, it's still an argument you hear at all the meetings. Um, my problem is I think these decisions are additive. I think that if you're on the, uh, you know, the, the side of the divide that chooses the lower number, that by the end of the day, you've got a 10% difference in your outcome. I do think they're additive or cumulative or whatever the proper word is. But I think you got to look hard at everything you do and say, what's the highest percentage? If you're a low-volume surgeon and you make a bad choice, you don't see that for years. At least it's not apparent to you. 
if you're doing it at my height, I was doing 1500 knees a year. So even an idiot would have to be blind right. not to notice that there was something going on, you know, that you were having a problem even at the two to 3% rate. So volume exposes a lot of things, uh, even to people who aren't uh, looking for them. So we started out this conversation, doctor, with your burgeoning writing career that got hijacked, but you know, you turned it into a prolific writing career on the publication side. You're, you're listed in so many publications. Tell me, is there one paper in particular that stands out to you as something you're the most proud of or you, you thought was the most impactful? Oh, gosh. I always thought I was a better speaker and a writer, and now it's gone the other way. Um, my speaking style was always a little different because I tried to use, if you've seen my talks, which I think you have, most yeah. of them are loaded with pictures. Um, if I say Jack Nicholas to you, uh, which... Uh, you, this you know, in your mind comes up a little picture of a pudgy, uh, very talented golfer, but we're image driven. So I've always tried. I thought that's why the talks in my mind were better than the papers, because I could use the images to drive home points, even if they were often sometimes images <laughs> right. tested the uh, propriety of the, uh, of the course director. But nonetheless, at least you remembered the point because right. of the image. Right. Um, and um, so now I, I, I had an article on robotics that uh, Jay Parvizi asked me to write. That's probably the it was the lead at an article last year in uh, one of the uh, arthroplasty that I thought was uh, it was a compromise article in a sense that it was a collaborative. But I I think it got across some of the points that I care about. And um, uh, gosh, probably the single publication that I'm proudest of is the one I referenced earlier with John Insel and Kelly Vince and myself. I think the matrix, you know, that how you deal with a knee that's tight inflection, loose right. extension, but that was my matrix. And that was the first time I wrote that down. I presented it long before that, but I was very pleased with that. And to do that in collaboration with Kelly, who believed in the flexion first and extension concept, and then to have it all sort of blessed and overseen by John Insel, that was probably, it's a little nothing pamphlet. I don't even you can get it anymore, but that was probably one of the things I was proudest of, uh, uh, just because the ideas all came together at once with a, with two people I extremely respect. Kelly Vince is, I probably should have put him on the list of people who, uh, who influenced me. I remember teaching that matrix to so many young reps and, uh, that there was that look on their face at first when they saw it. Well, you know, the story behind that is, just for your own amusement, um, <laughs> that Dave Hungerford, who was supremely smart, spoke three languages, he came up with the concept that there were actually 108 variables. If you took the three parts and looked at all, you know, the patella could be high, low, medial, lateral, thick, thin, each one of them had eight or nine different possibilities. And if you multiply them all together, there are actually 108 different variables. Wow. Well, that was way too much. And he created this graph and nobody's ever read the paper because it was so friggin' complicated. You couldn't David understood it, but nobody else could. And so I said, <laughs> wait a minute, we gotta, we gotta make this a little more, you know, for dummies like me. So I'm the one who reduced it to the nine, uh, the nine square matrix that, uh, that right. survived. 
but I actually took the thought from uh, Hungerford, even though I must say he was way smarter than I was and uh, uh, was right, but it was just too complicated to be practical. So, Wasn't he the one that came up with, uh, you know, we talk about kinematic alignment, you brought that up, we got mechanical alignment, but wasn't he the one that came up with anatomic alignment? Yep. The fallacy, and it's it's back now. It's 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 the kinematic knee, uh, you know, by Martin um, Black and on his name. He was my resident. Stephen Howell. Steve. Stephen Howell. Uh, yeah. He was a resident at Jeff with me, and but you know, if you put the tibia in varus, and I grant you the natural tibia is in varus, um, and three degrees is an average. So every time you pick an average number you're going to get an average result, in my view. So <laughs> there, he picked three degrees. But what that meant was that if you put the femur on using the transepicondylar axis, you would have laxity medially. If you put the femur on internally rotated off the transcondylar axis, transepicondylar axis, then you would have a knee that was balanced, but it, it was internally rotated on the femur. So it created, and that's exactly what that old knee did. Um, and, you know, that's why they keep old guys around for a little while anyway, because they remember all the mistakes we've made in the past. And when right. I see them coming back again, it's kind of frustrating. And for a while, these things will work and they'll work in certain populations. Even alignment's being challenged now. I mean, the, everybody's saying, well, you should Pugnano and the Bulgins and you should leave the knee in a little varus. I I think that's true for a truly natural knee, but I don't think it's true for a mechanical device that's symmetrical that we're putting in now. I mean, the tibia is is convex on one side, it's concave on the other, it's a medial pitch of an average of three degrees, it's set on a posterior slope of an average of seven bony degrees, three meniscal degrees, um, and to think that you can cut that level and put in, a, a, you know, a, a symmetrical component is is just naive. So I don't think I'm going to live to see that concept change, though. So we'll see. Oh. That's for you guys to persuade. Yeah. Others. And then well. follow them and see what happens. Um, I predict yeah. they're going to fail like they did before. The difference now is the poly won't be the failure mechanism. I think that's the saving grace that the new polys are so good that they're going to withstand a lot more variations in alignment. You have such a gift. When Whenever there was a meeting and you were speaking, people would be outside, snacking, <laughs> drinking, and they go, oh, boost coming on, and everybody would go in there. You really have such a gift for taking the, some of these arcane and nerdy uh, subjects and making it fun, accessible, uh having a well, good laugh you. about it. It just, it fed into my whole passion for the business. So thank you for that. And look what you've done with it too. I mean, this is a wonderful opportunity to talk to people and get to hear what they really think. And your questions are well put and well formulated. So uh, if, if I had any impact on sending you in that direction, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the best thing for any teacher is when his student uh, exceeds him. So uh, your podcasts are uh, something I wish uh, we had back in the day. You're doing a great job with that. Well, you are very kind. Uh, I was just curious if you had any advice to dispense to the surgeons coming along as they're starting their career, uh, things that you've learned over the years. If you just had a couple things to share that you think will help them out as they build uh, their future, what would it be? I think you got to, if you're moving into uh, finishing your fellowship, and moving into a new community and there was a young man I wanted to work with and he's 
gone to uh, another place, but we still exchange cases. And exactly what I predicted is what's happened. As soon as a new guy gets to town, he's getting cases that even I would <laughs> think twice about doing because these guys have been saving them up. Right. So don't let yourself get painted into things that are uh, that are too much risk. I think the cones bring up an issue. Don't do things that you can't fix yourself um, if there's a problem. Right. I think waiting two years um you may not be the don't be the first don't be the last in your community to take on a new idea but the new ideas now are few and far between that actually have an impact it's not as easy as it was in the early days when these were were frankly uh in, in way in need of improvement uh so just be careful what you do um take care of your partners um you need friends. So many of us are. Uh, uh, you, you need you need people you can talk to and talk things over. Most of us spend our time talking. It used to be malpractice. Now it's business and administration and all this other stuff. We need to talk more about medicine, which is what used to be more fun, certainly. Um, and uh, we need to take back the night from. Uh, uh, all the politicians and people who are running my medicine now, I think our societies need to step up and be proactive and not reactive and uh, let us be the ones who are the decision makers, uh, which we used to be. Um, I, I, I envy the young guys. There's going to be a lot of change. I do think a lot of that's going to be biologic as much as prosthetic uh, in years to come. Dr. Booth, a lot of reps listen to this show, and your son is a device rep in exactly. this space, I believe. What advice What advice would you give them uh, to be the best at their jobs they can possibly um, be? I think it's reliability. That my, my personal uh, or the, the, the uh, rep who works with me, Tom Miller, has never failed me with not having the parts there and being on time, it just takes a huge worry off me that he's a hundred percent reliable. Um, my son is a slightly different situation where he not only has to do that, but also has to go out and persuade other surgeons that his product is, uh, is better. And even if it is, uh, so much of this is based on trust and interpersonal relations. So, um, on the other hand, as he's pointed out to me, he can put in 10 a day. I can only put in a few, you know, so uh, being a sales rep's a good, right. uh, a good situation. And, uh, he's made a lot of friends and, uh, I think, uh, uh indirectly helped uh, an awful lot of patients. So I'm, I'm pleased to see him growing, even though we're not supposed to talk about it too much. I do get to see the other side of the equation, which, which helps me, uh, certainly, uh, advising people so it's nice to see the whole picture well let's jump out of the operating room just for one second kind of close up shop on this subject dr booth i have heard your name associated with antiques uh <laughs> for many years and shaker furniture and, and that kind of thing and i understand you're you're quite an expert on some of the stuff tell me about it how'd you get into it and uh what are you what are you passionate about in that space well again i was a passive participant in the, in the beginning my wife uh I built all the furniture that, as an intern on which we lived after we got married, a trestle table and six captain's chairs and consoles and things. But they 
quickly uh, they were green wood they weren't as well constructed as uh, as the joints i was doing and so she wanted new furniture and persuaded me uh, she wanted a long table with ladder back chairs because our family came over for dinner so i did what you do to any resident who comes to you with a project you say go listen go look up the world's literature then come back to me and we'll talk you know just to stall him so two days later she came back and persuaded me that the shakers whom i'd never heard of in my life uh, made the best ladder back chairs so we bought some and i got interested in the ethic uh, not the religion specifically but the concept that every job you did no matter how menial you did it to the best of your ability and every product you made whether it's a chair or a scoop or a, a you know a desk whatever you made it as if uh, uh the shakers are credited with this but it's probably saint paul as as if it was going to be your last uh, effort ever and i kind of like that concept of how you did furniture making but also uh, how it applied to surgery so uh we gradually got more and more interested in it uh it was supposed to be just one room in the house and pretty soon it had metastasized all over back then doctors you get two doctors together all they talked about was malpractice and problems whereas the antique business people were happy and positive and on the other side of their brain and so we now have my wife is my wife is a chairman of the board of a big museum here, Winter Tour, which is a decorative arts museum. And we're this is a big part of our lives. It's started with Shaker, which was simplistic furniture, but it's now Pennsylvania German things. Uh, we have a big collection of fire materials, all sorts of things. And I like the history behind them. I like the fact that it introduces us to a different group of people than just the doctors we would normally meet. Uh, I like the fact that my wife uh, is getting the glory now. I'm the spouse, so she's come to all these meetings and listened to boring doctors. Now I go to these meetings. They give me a name tag and a glass of wine, and I stand a half step behind her. And uh, frankly, that's just fine. I'm proud of her, and it's good for me. <laughs> so <laughs> it's nice that our roles have reversed over the years. So. It's been a good ride. Our kids uh, still make fun of us, but we'll see what happens. It's interesting when they're starting to take an interest in us. So we'll see what happens with them. Well, Dr. Booth, you have had such a huge footprint in our joint reconstruction space and have been such a personal inspiration to me. Uh, I just wanted to say a huge thank you for coming on the show just to share your life uh, with me and my audience. Great work, sir. Kevin, you've been great. You're fun to talk to. I could talk to you forever. So uh, thank you for spending so much time with me. The spoken medium is just not adequate to express how thankful I am for Dr. Booth coming on the show and sharing his life with us. What an opportunity to hear from the master of the craft. I love this quote from Brian Tracy, learn from the experts. You will not live long enough to figure it all out by yourself. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Booth, and thank you, Device Nation, for tuning in. Appreciate you so much, and look forward to seeing you all on the first step up on our Behavioral Influence Stairway. Hope you all have an awesome week. Device Nation. 